It truly is a game that is as old as time itself, the game of hide-and-seek. And it's a game that I remember playing as a young person, and I would say that every adult sitting in this auditorium at one time or another, in one way or another, has played the game of hide-and-seek. It is a game that is as old as time, nearly so. In Genesis chapter 3, we find the first occurrence of the game being played, right? In Genesis chapter 3, sin has entered the world, and Adam and Eve find themselves desiring to hide from God. In this case, they are the ones who are hiding, and God is the one who is doing the seeking. In fact, you find in Genesis chapter 3 and verse number 9, God asking, Where are you? And Adam and Eve responding, We were hiding from you. Why are you hiding? Because we are naked. Who told you that you were naked? And the conversation continues from there. It is a game as old as time. It is a game that Jonah tried to play, right? If you read in Jonah chapter 1 and verse number 3, the Bible says that he got on that ship that was headed for Tarshish, and the Bible says that he was fleeing from the presence of the Lord. What is he doing? He's wanting to hide. He's wanting to hide from God. Adam and Eve found out the hard way, and you don't hide from God. And Jonah found out the hard way that you don't hide from God. You are incapable of hiding yourself from the presence of God. God will always find you. He knows exactly where you are. There are other occurrences in the Bible, however, where men weren't hiding from God, but had the feeling that God was hiding from them. You ever had that feeling? You ever found yourself asking yourself, God, where are you? God, it doesn't feel like you're very near. God, I am hurting, I'm suffering, I'm going through a difficult time, and I'm not sure that you're there. I'm not sure that you're available. And we feel as if God is hiding from us. David had those thoughts. Job certainly had those thoughts, didn't he? God, where are you? I'm desiring to talk to you. I don't feel as if you're very close. I don't feel as if you're near me. Man cannot hide from God where God cannot find. And God does not hide where man cannot find Him. It's really not a game of hide and seek when it comes to God. It's really not fair at all because God is always going to find. And we need to understand that God is always near. That's what Paul says, right? in those verses that Brother Roger read for us just a moment ago. Paul, in this great sermon, if you've not got your Bibles open, please do so to Acts chapter 17. And notice exactly what's going on here as as drawing to a, a close of what he's going to say. Paul says there in Acts chapter 17 and verse number 27 that we should be seeking the Lord in the hope that we might grope for Him and find Him, though He is what? Not far. From each one of us. I'm interested in what Paul has to say in that verse there in Acts chapter 17 and verse 27, where he gives the imperative, the command to seek God and to do so continually. But I'm very interested in what he has to say prior to this. The question is why? Why should I be seeking God? Why should I want to have a relationship with God? And so I back up in the context and gain a little bit of perspective here, because Paul doesn't begin by telling these men in Athens that they need to be seeking God. He begins by telling them about God. And so let's begin with him. 
Let's back up a little bit. If God is the one that I need to be seeking to have a relationship with, why? Why? Who is God? And so you back up to verse number 24. This is who God is. God, He is the one who made the world and everything in it. (laughs) You get the picture, right, of Athens and what's going on here in Acts chapter 17? You remember that Paul has entered the city of Athens and probably from an elevated position he has looked across the city of Athens and the Bible says that his spirit is provoked within him when he sees the city given entirely over to idolatry. They've got all of these fancy buildings and these fancy temples and he's looked across and his spirit is hurting within him when he sees that they're not bowing before God, they're bowing before man-made images and idols. He says, I want to tell you not about those. I want to tell you about God. And I want to remind you that he is the creator of the world. He is the creator of heaven and earth. I want to be reminded that that I'm not seeking something that man made up. I'm seeking God, the creator of heaven and earth. I'm seeking a relationship with the creator, the one who literally spoke and this world came into existence. I'm seeking him. I'm seeking to be in a relationship with, with him. It speaks to God's power and majesty. In the same verse, Paul goes on to say, He made the world and everything in it since he is Lord of heaven and earth, and he does not dwell in temples made with men's hands. He is the creator and he is the sovereign ruler. I'm seeking to have a relationship with the sovereign ruler, the Lord of heaven and earth. Brethren and friends, we need to get this picture in our mind of exactly who God is. Now, Paul is going to say that we're seeking to have a relationship with Him. But who? The Creator. The Sovereign Ruler. You know, Solomon understood this in 1 Kings chapter 8 and verse 27. He has built this magnificent structure, right? The temple in Jerusalem. David had desired to build it for God, and and God says no to David, but he says, your son Solomon, he's going to build it. And he had over 100,000 men working to build this magnificent structure over a period of about seven years. If you can just begin to imagine the beauty of the structure that was the temple built in Jerusalem for God. And yet upon its dedication... There in 1 Kings chapter 8 and verse 27, uh, God, uh, Solomon says, the, heaven, the heavens and the heaven of heavens cannot contain you, let alone this structure which I have built. God, the heaven and the heavens of heavens cannot begin to contain you. He is the sovereign ruler. This is the one that we are seeking. Paul goes on. He says, I'm just telling you who it is, that this unknown God, the one that you need to be serving, these idols you need to put away, and this is the God that you need to turn to, the self-reliant one. Get this. Verse number 25. Nor is he worshipped with men's hands as though he needed anything. I love that expression. Because here are all of these fancy buildings, all of these great magnificent structures that we would look at and marvel over in the city of Athens. 
And yet in each one of those buildings where these false idols are being worshipped, someone had to build it. Someone had to build the idol. Someone had to to come up with, with what this idol was God over. It's all the invention of man. And then you have to have individuals who would go and serve in those various temples to feed and provide for this idol which man made up. Without man, that God doesn't exist. And without man, I mean, it's just a statue of something, but they're, they're, they're putting food before it, and they're bowing down before it, and they're serving in this various temple. And without man, that God doesn't exist. But not so with the God of heaven and earth. I need to be reminded that God doesn't need me. To survive. He doesn't need anything from me to be who he is. He is who he is with or without me. But I, I am nothing without him. We need to get that picture in our mind and be reminded that that's exactly the relationship that we have with God and who he is. If I was born and placed in a corner, you know where I'm going to die? In the corner. Why? Because I can't sustain myself. As children, little children, as babies, we are incapable of providing for ourselves. But as an adult, I'm still incapable of providing for myself. I breathe His air. I need His rain. I get to live in his, his earth, in the atmosphere and environment that He provides. I cannot sustain myself physically, let alone emotionally, mentally, or spiritually. I can't do it by myself. But God is self-reliant. He is not like me. And Paul is reminding them of this. He goes on to talk about the fact that He is a generous giver. He gives to all life, breath, and how many things? All of them. That's right. He gives all of them. Our God is a generous giver. I want to be seeking a God who is a generous giver, who provides everything in life that I need. And so Paul is just making this list, and he goes on and on. He says in verse number 26, And he has made from one blood every nation of men to dwell on the face of the earth. He is the great unifier. Prejudiced should not exist among those who are seeking God. Prejudice doesn't exist among God's people. We don't look at skin color. We don't look at nationality. We don't listen to language that is being spoken because the Bible says that there's only one race, and it is what? The human race. He is made from one blood, every nation. God is the great unifier. You want a country that's unified? You need a country who's looking to God. You want a church that's unified? Then you need brethren and sisters and brothers who are seeking God. He's the great unifier. Paul is reminding them of this. Peter was reminded in Acts chapter 10, verses 34 and 35, that he says, In truth, I, I perceive that God shows no partiality, right? In every nation, whoever fears God is accepted by Him. That's what we need to be reminded of today. 
God is the great unifier. He is the generous giver. He is sovereign. He is self-reliant. He is the creator of heaven and earth. Jesus says, go into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. Go into all nations. Preach the gospel. Matthew 28, 18 through 20. Mark 16, 15 and 16. And Paul says, I want to give you one more. At the end of verse number 26, it's God. This God that I'm telling you about who has determined the pre-appointed times and the boundaries of their dwellings. It is this God who is in control. God has fixed the boundaries. Now, I want you to look at that list. I put it up there so you, you wouldn't be mistaken of what Paul has said. And there's more that we could add, no doubt. Other ideas that you could come up with as you look at this same context. That's the beauty of studying God's Word. But I want you to notice this list that I put together. I want you to see who Paul says God is. And then he says, you have a response to make. To who he is. You need to be seeking him. Now the word seek. That's found over 150 times. In the New Testament. I'm not going to take the time. To go through all of the times. That we find the word seek. In the New Testament. Just know that would be a good study. For you to do sometime. But this morning as we think about this context. About who God is. And my response to him. I want to be reminded of a couple of very important things. I have a need to be seeking God. These men of Athens were seeking all of these various gods and goddesses, and they were bowing down to these false idols, offering false worship. And Paul says there's only one God that really, truly exists and matters. And you need to be seeking Him. So I'm asking the question, is God out of your reach? Is God out of my reach? The creator of heaven and earth. The one who is self-reliant. The one who is a generous giver. The sovereign ruler over all. The one who is truly in control. Is he out of my reach? There is a sense when one reaches an accountable age that the answer is yes. Because the Bible does say that sin separates one from God. And so in that sense, he is out of reach if sin is separating one from him. Sin will do that. And we need to be open and honest about that. But I'm telling you that the Bible also says, Jesus says, if you'll seek, you shall find. I appreciate the songs that Brother Troy led, but isn't that exactly what Jesus said? Seek ye first the kingdom of God, seek and you will find. That's exactly what Jesus tells us. In Acts chapter 17 and verse 27, again, the Bible says, Paul says that you should seek the Lord. And the idea of that present tense verb is that we should, as God's people, continually be seeking to have a relationship with God. We should continually be seeking God. And then he takes it to the next step. I love this word, that you should grope for him. Now, I remember as a young person and through the lives of our boys... You see this progression where you start off with the basic hide-and-seek, right? Basic hide-and-seek. It's like the picture that I had up there a few minutes ago where you've got young kids, one hiding behind a tree, and the others are running off. And, and you remember, especially young kids, I mean, they can cover their eyes and think they're hiding. 
right? I mean, if they can't see you, then, then you can't see them in their mind, right? So it starts off with that very basic way of, of playing hide and seek, and then it progresses where they get a little bit better, and they find better hiding places until it progresses to the point that you're playing in the dark. Well, that's a whole new level, isn't it? I mean, it, it takes some bravery on the part of young people to get to a point where they will play it in the dark because that gets scary, doesn't it? It gets scary to go hide yourself in a very dark place. Uh, one of our favorite things to do as a family is play hide-and-seek. And we play it in the dark, but we use uh, glow bracelets. And we, we, we get, you get about ten of those little cheap glow bracelets. You break them, and they glow, and you put them on yourself. And you have to hide, and you can't conceal that. So it, it gives you a little bit more of a challenge to hide in the dark, but you still have a little bit of light. But I remember as a young person, we lived out on a farm in Kansas, and we played this game called Gray Wolf, and it was hide-and-seek tag in the dark, and it was just not smart. Uh, it was just not a smart game to play in the dark, because you were running around, and you were going to trip and fall over some obstacle that you couldn't see, and literally at times, you were feeling your way across the face of a building or a different kind of structure as you were seeking to find someone who was hiding there in the dark. And then when you found them, you had to run to a base and you were tripping and falling and running into trees. And as young people, you just don't think about that because you don't hurt as bad when you're young. I wouldn't play that game now. Groping is the idea of feeling your way as if in the dark to find God. So it's not just that, that I'm seeking Him, it's that I'm feeling my way. I have such a desire to be with Him and to have a relationship with Him that I am literally feeling my way for Him as if in the dark. You get that picture? Do you grope? For God. Are you so interested in being with God that you are feeling your way through Him, for Him, through this life? Groping for God. That's what Paul says. Because of who He is, we should have this desire to be with Him in a right relationship with Him. Though He is not far from each one of us. He is near. He is close. He is with us. And so in the remaining moments that I have this morning, I want to give you four principles that really need to be in our lives as we feel our way to be in the presence of God, to be in a right relationship with Him as we seek to be with Him and where He is. We must do so with the right motivation. Seek God with the right motivation. Seek God for who He is. Now, Paul has just given us a list of who He is. And so he's saying to these people of Athens, look, you need to understand that that should motivate you to seek Him because of who He is. Not for what you think He can do for you. You see the difference? We seek Him for who He is, not because of what we think He can do for us. And that's tempting, isn't it? I've had people say, Adam, will you pray for me? Uh, will you pray that God will help me in my new business venture? 
Adam, will you pray that, that God will help me financially? Uh, Adam, will you pray and this and this and this? And, and the motivation is something of this world. It's not wrong to pray for those things, but I only am asked by certain people to pray only because of a certain physical need that they have in their life. It's saying there's more to God than that. That our motivation is not simply what we think God can do for us, but because we seek Him for who He is. There's an example of this in John chapter 6. And perhaps you've looked at this example and you remember it well, but in John chapter 6, recall that Jesus has fed 5,000 individuals, in fact, more than that, with five loaves and two fish. That Jesus has been healing multitudes of people, and He has this great multitude now that is following Him around. And he fed them, and he took care of them. And that night, he walks on water over to the other side of the Sea of Galilee. And the next day, the multitude wakes up, and he's not there anymore. And so they find themselves going around the Sea of Galilee to be where he is. And Jesus says to them these words in John chapter 6, and you can find it in your copy of God's Word, verses 26 and 27. Jesus says, Most assuredly, I say to you, you seek me, listen, Not because you saw the signs, but because you ate of the loaves and were filled. Do not labor for food which perishes, but for the food which endures to everlasting life, which the Son of Man will give you, because God the Father has set His seal on Him. I know why you're here, Jesus says. You're seeking me because I fed you. You're seeking me because I provided you with food. And you want me to feed you again. He says, I don't want you to be seeking me for what, I, what you think I can give you physically. I'm much more interested in your soul. I'm much more interested in you understanding who I am as God. I'm much more interested in you seeking me because of what I can provide you spiritually, eternally. And that's what we need to be motivated by as well. Second, we need to be motivated to seek God with the right heart. I think it's ironic a bit, but here in Acts chapter 17, Paul is dealing with idolaters, right? These people who are serving all of these false gods. In Deuteronomy chapter 4, God's people are not necessarily engaged in idolatry at that point, and yet Moses, before they entered into the promised land, was already telling them that in generations to come, they would get entangled in idolatry, and that God was going to remove them from the land, which they hadn't even entered yet. So he says, I already know how this is going to play out. You're going to be tempted to give yourselves over to idols, and God is going to remove you from this land. And yet, if you go to Deuteronomy chapter 4, notice what he says is going to happen when they get, and of course Moses is speaking directly to this generation that is about to enter the promised land, but he's really, these words are speaking to their ancestors who are going to come later. There are people down the line. But he says in verse number 29 of Deuteronomy 4, But from there, from Babylon, Assyria, from there you will seek the Lord your God, and you will find Him if, conditional statement, if you seek Him with all your heart and all your soul. And the last part of that chapter, verse 39, Therefore know this day, and consider it in your heart, that the Lord Himself is God in heaven above and on the earth beneath, There is no other. You shall therefore keep his statutes and his commandments, which I command you today, that it may go well with you and with your children after you, and that you may prolong your days in the land which the Lord your God is giving you for all time. There is one God, and you must seek him 
with all your heart and all your soul. The temptation, brethren and friends, is to relegate God to a convenient place in your heart. That is, to relegate God to that little convenient corner of your life, that little convenient place where you can just pull Him out whenever it's convenient for you. But then you can tuck Him back away when your things that you're really interested in, the hobbies that you really enjoy, the job that you really like and have, the money that you really want to make, you can go ahead and let that be what motivates you or or really what gets you going every day. And, And you can just pull God out on Sunday morning. He says, that's not it. That's not what I desire. That's not seeking me. I want want to motivate my children to seek God with their whole heart. But brethren and friends, they'll never do it if they don't see Dad doing it. It will be much more difficult, let me say it this way, for them to do it if they don't see Mom and Dad doing it. If they don't see examples that are provided. Seek God, he says, with the whole heart. By, without, but without faith, it is impossible to please God. For he who comes to God must believe that he is and that he is a rewarder of those who what? Diligently seek him. Does that sound like half-hearted service? Does that sound like you can have God tucked away in a little corner and, and just pull him out when it's convenient? God says, I'm not interested in a part. I'm interested in you, all of you, and I want your wholehearted service. God is not far from us. He really is not hiding, but only when we seek Him diligently will He be found. We need to understand that. We need to seek God in the right place. Where do I seek God? Where is God found? I'll tell you where He's only found in His Son. John chapter 14 and verse 6 Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except by or through me. We're only going to get to God through His Son. We're only going to get to heaven through Jesus. And we need to be reminded, God was not going to be found in gold or silver or the earthly temples in the city of Athens. Paul says He's not going to be found there. That's the major thrust of his message is right here. You're not going to find Him in those empty temples. You're going to find him in his son. And so that's why in Acts chapter 17, he's going to talk about Jesus in verse number 31. Because he, God, has appointed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by the man, by Jesus, whom he has ordained. He has given assurance of this to all by raising him from the dead. It is Jesus who is the image of the invisible God. Colossians 1, 15 through 19. It is Us seeking Jesus where He is, sitting at the right hand of God, setting our mind or seeking those things which are above and those things which are not on the earth. Colossians chapter 3, verses 1 through 4. We need to seek God in the right place. He's only found in His Son. We need to know Jesus, and to know Jesus is to know God. Finally, let me say this. Paul is telling these people of Athens 
You need to be seeking in the right way. You need to be seeking Him in the right way. This is who God is. He's the creator. He's the sovereign ruler. He is the generous giver. He is self-reliant. He is in control. He is all of these things. And listen, you need to be seeking Him His way. The people of Athens had their way of worship, their way of going about seeking these false idols. Denominationalists have their way of going about seeking God. I'm not interested in it. We must be interested in God and doing things exactly the way that He says. I am seeking true worshipers. John chapter 4, verses 23 and 24. I'm seeking those who will abide in me. The right way. Someone put it this way, and before I'm done today, I want to share this with you. Someone has said that faith removes my love of sin. I'm talking about obeying God on His terms. I'm talking about finding the way that God says we must seek Him in order to find Him. Faith is what it takes, the Bible says. Faith removes my love of sin. Think about that with me. As I examine the evidence of who God is, the Creator, the Sovereign Ruler, all of these things that we've talked about a moment ago, as I weigh the evidence and I notice that that these empty temples, these temples, as beautiful as their structure may be, they're empty, that those idols are nothing, and anything that I put in the place of God is simply false. As I weigh the evidence of who God is, and I strive to obey Him, faith removes my love of sin. As I come to love God for His love for me, as I come to love God and have a greater appreciation for the sacrifice of Jesus, as I come and weigh the evidence and I see of God's grace and I see His mercy and I see His compassion and I see the way that He provides for me every day of my life, I grow to love Him more. My faith grows stronger and deeper. And therefore, my love for sin goes away. Faith has a way of removing my love for sin. Repentance. Repentance removes my practice of sin. Because in repentance, what I do is I I recognize that what I'm practicing is sinful and against God. And in repentance, I turn away from that and I go to God. I'm seeking God. I'm going in His direction. And so repentance removes my practice of sin. Faith removes my love of sin. Repentance removes my practice of sin. Confession, my faith, uh, confession of my belief as Jesus in the son, uh, as the Son of God, confession removes my commitment to the way of sin or to its practice. Jesus says, if you will confess me before men... I'll confess you before my Father. If you deny me before men, I will deny you before my Father. If you will continue to confess me before men, you found me. Confession, friends, is a commitment. As they were traveling down the road, the Ethiopian looked over at Philip and says, here's water, what hinders me from being baptized? And Philip says, if you believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God, then you may. And he said what? 
I believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. What is he saying? I'm committing myself to Jesus. I believe him to be the Christ, the Son of God. I'm making a commitment to him. When you make a commitment to Jesus, what are you saying? I'm removing my commitment to sin. That's what I'm saying. And I'm seeking him. And I will grope for him. Don't turn your ears off yet. If faith removes my love for sin, and repentance removes my practice of sin, and confession removes my commitment to sin, what removes my guilt of sin? You see, I can weigh the evidence, and I can come to have a belief in God, I can come to faithfully be committed to Him. I can remove myself from the habitual practice of sin and I can be committed to Christ. I can be committed to God. I can do all of those things. But I cannot, of myself, remove my guilt of sin. And neither can you. God had to take care of that one. God provides me with the evidence that my faith may be in Him. God gives me a way to show my commitment and my love to Him. He has given me everything that I need. But He also has given me the ability to have my guilt of sin removed. And that is only through the blood of His Son. Only the blood of Jesus can do that. I'm here to tell you today that we are to be seeking after God because of who He is. And He has given us a way to seek after Him. We can be in a right relationship with, with Him where sin had once separated us from God. Now Paul says, you can find Him. Baptism. Baptism is where I contact the blood of Christ. And that's where the guilt of my sin is removed. That's what the Bible teaches. Arise and be baptized and... Wash away your sin. You've been washed in the blood of Christ. Acts 22, verse 16, coupled with Revelation chapter 1 and verse 5. It's baptism that removes the guilt of my sin. We're seeking God. Only the blood of Jesus can do that. And my friend, if you've not obeyed the gospel, then the invitation of the Lord is extended to you. This is how we are seeking after God, His way, for who He is. Desiring to be in a right relationship with Him is our response. The invitation of the Lord is extended to you. If you've not become a Christian, you need to know that this is His way, and it's the only way there is. But for those who are Christians, I have this concluding thought. In Luke chapter 19 and verse 10, Jesus says, I have come to seek and save those who are lost. <laughs> We've talked a lot about God this morning and who He is. We've talked a lot this morning about our proper response in seeking after Him, being motivated by who He is, seeking Him His way and in the right place. 
But I want to remind us as Christians today that there was a day when Jesus came to this earth for me and for you to seek me. To seek me. Because He knew there was a way for me to be with Him. And it was only through His sacrifice. And so as Christians, I'm asking you this question. Am I seeking Him? He sought me when I was lost without Him. Am I continuing to seek after Him today? Are you seeking God? Are you groping for Him? Do you have that much desire to be in a right relationship with Him? Do you have that much desire to go and to be with Him for all eternity? Am I seeking Him? If we can help you this morning, won't you please respond while together we stand and sing.